Business never better using only pussy cats and toast. Now a pussy's good for maybe six or seven at the most. And I'm sure they can't compare as far as taste. Mrs. Lovett, what a charming notion, well, eminently practical and yet appropriate as always. Mrs. Lovett, how I've been without idea. you all these years, I'll never know. Think about how it. Lots of other gentlemen will soon be coming for the shame. Won't have choice. The sound of the world out there. What, Mr. Todd, what, Mr. Todd, what is that sound? Those crunching noises pervading the air. Yes, Mr. Todd, yes, Mr. Todd, yes, all around. It's man devouring man, my dear. And who are we to deny it in air? These are desperate times, Mrs. Lovett. Desperate measures are called for. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, July 9th, 2017. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. So aside from all of your other duties there that I just mentioned, next Sunday you have something exciting coming up at 54 Below. You're going to be narrating a Broadway musical. Uh, Literally a Broadway musical (laughs) in the sense that the show is called a Broadway musical. It appeared on Broadway in 1978. It did not last long. It lasted one night uh, officially. That opening night was closing night. But uh, it had a lot of assets. It was a very troubled production in the vantage point that it was hard to raise money for it. A producer who um, didn't have that much uh, luck on Broadway. And uh, under those circumstances, it was underfinanced. Um, it was the show that went out of town by going up to uh, the Upper West Side. That's where they went, uh, for out of town. A small production started there. Um, they they were hoping that um, enough would happen that it, they could bring it in, which they barely did. Um, it wasn't a scenic masterpiece, to say the least. Uh, so it was done on the cheap. And if 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 a major producer had taken it, indeed, I think the, uh, it would have worked out uh, slightly better. This does not mean the show um, is perfect or doesn't have problems, but it has one of the best title songs you've never heard. And um, and for that alone, it's worth the price of admission. So we're doing it next Sunday at Feinstein's 54 Below at 7.30 and 9.30. And uh, we have a very nice cast. Uh, we have Jason Grah, who we all know from Forever Plaid. We have Glory Crampton, who has been a big star at the Paper Mill Playhouse. Clifton Davis, whom I'm sure you didn't see in Daddy Goodness, which closed in Philadelphia, but I did. Uh, Neva Small, who was in Henry Sweet Henry and in The Impossible Years. And then... They're having not one, not two, not three, not four, but five members of the original cast to show up, including Larry Marshall, uh, who essentially plays Sammy Davis Jr., Mm. essentially, because that's what this is about. A Broadway musical is about the woes that happened to Golden Boy, the show that Strauss and Adams, who wrote a Broadway musical, um, had in 1964 while working with Sammy Davis, who, after all, was the muscle of the production because he was the big star and wasn't it great to get Sammy Davis 
coming from uh, the recording and Hollywood worlds to, to deign to come to Broadway and do a Broadway show. So that's uh, that's basically what the story is, though it also touches upon theater party ladies and lawyers and other things that really indicate that it's a miracle that any show ever gets on. And as the title song ends, but when it works, forget the jerks who told you it couldn't go for there's nothing like a Broadway show. Okay, <laughs> so um, I hope to see you all um, next Sunday, um, July 16th at Feinstein's 54 Below, either at 7.30 or 9.30. Parenthetic, parenthetically, when I went to see Napoli, Brooklyn at the Roundabout uh, about a week and a half ago, Charles Strauss and his wife were in the audience, and I am delighted to say that he looked absolutely fantastic. I'm glad to hear he, that. He looked like a 60-year-old man. I, I oh, think I had heard that he had had some health issues a while back and so i was so happy to see him and speak with him that night and i'm sure he'll be <laughs> i can you know i'm sure he'll be present for your event it sounds really wonderful uh i would think that the man who wrote songs like put on a happy face and the sun will come out tomorrow can certainly bounce back from health issues so yes indeed let's hope that uh, he keeps doing it because uh he's one of our uh blue chip composers needless to say so uh this is a score that was never recorded and um so here's the chance to hear it yep 54 below we love what they're doing there the other voice that you are hearing before longtime listeners will know that it is michael portantier he's a theater reviewer and essayist whose work appears at talk and broadway everything sondheim and broadway stars he is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the new york times and other major publications you can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com good morning michael good morning Good morning. So you just mentioned that you saw Napoli, Brooklyn. Why don't we start off with that? Both you and Michael got to see that. Jan talked about it last week in your stead, Michael. She filled in for you. Uh, she gave us her review of Napoli, Brooklyn. So, Peter, why don't you start off with Napoli, Brooklyn? Tell us what you thought. Uh, I'm going to say that people who have uh, a heart condition uh, who have been worried about seeing 1984 might worry a little bit about Napoli, Brooklyn, because there is a moment that will shock you. It's it's otherwise it's a it's a very nice kitchen sink drama about Italian-Americans living uh, in 1960. And it's still an old world family. It's a father and mother with three daughters, each of whom has her own issue. Uh, and we're very concerned at the beginning to see one sister who um, has tape across her nose, a band-aid a bandage across her nose. How did it get there? We'll eventually find out. Uh, then, of course, you have the youngest daughter who's always talking about running away from home, don't we all, when we're uh, unappreciated as teenagers? Uh, more will come of that as well. And then there's the other sister who's in a very dead-end job and working with a, a black woman and is learning that um, <laughs> that uh, it doesn't pay to be prejudiced, that it really... Uh, People are people, and um, they will bond in in a very uh, significant way. The younger sister, though, um, some may take a bit of issue with the fact that uh, the younger sister and her best friend certainly have um, a relationship that may surprise a lot of people. It may seem a little ahead of the curve, considering that it's 1960, but we'll leave it at that. Um, also, uh, there's um, a butcher uh, who um, has a, a thing, 
for uh, the mother of the family. And we'll see how that plays out because it's not a great marriage at all. Uh, the mother does the best she can under very difficult circumstances, but this is a real tyrannical father who really believes that when he's at home, he rules the roost. So there are a lot of complications there, but believe me, there's something that happens out of the blue that um, turns this family upside down in more ways than one. And the relationship, too, between the um, youngest girl and her best friend gets turned upside down as well. Um, terrific cast, uh, really very nicely done. Michael Rispoli uh, plays the father, um, does extraordinarily well by that um, in being this what seems to be a benign despot, but don't um, don't bet on it uh, being benign for so much longer. And um, Alyssa Bresnahan is terrific as the wife. Um, the three girls are wonderful as well. Um, Jordan Di Natale plays Francesca, that's the youngest, and um, Lily Kay and Elise Keebler. Uh, uh, are in less important roles, I'll grant you, but they uh, they don't make them that way. I would like to talk a bit about Eric Lochtefeld, who plays uh, the butcher. Eric Lochtefeld uh, was somebody I saw when he was in high school. Yes, indeed, in Cochran Carlisle High School. It, my best friend's c- cousin had a son who was playing Marcus Lycus in Funny Thing. <laughs> so um, I went, and Eric Lochtefeld and this is like 25 years ago, uh, was playing Pseudolus. Okay, the place was packed, packed, to the point of which that they had to put extra chairs at the end of each aisle. Okay, so both left, right, and center has an extra chair. I mean, the fire marshals would go crazy if they saw this. I was in the second row, okay, on the extreme left-hand side. So there was somebody sitting next to me, and there was someone sitting in front of me as well uh, in the first row. All right. So you know how everybody fools around with funny thing. So the director decided that he was going to uh, have Pseudolus come into the audience and pull somebody on stage and fool around with the person. So Eric Lochtefeld comes down the stairs and he comes down to the person who is now sitting in the first row um, on the um, on the aisle. So I can see this very well because I'm there. (laughs) What nobody realizes um, at this point is what's going to happen because Eric Lochtefeld reaches to pull the, the kid on stage and only at the last minute realizes that he's in a wheelchair So, oh, my God, what is going to happen? I have never seen an actor improv so wonderfully. He was reaching out with his hand to pull him up and all of a sudden saw this this young man in a wheelchair and suddenly went eeny, meeny, miny, moe to the person behind him and then chose the person behind him and brought him on stage. And I'll tell you, the kid in the wheelchair laughed as hard as anyone that he got out of the situation so wonderfully, uh, because who would think of doing something like that under the circumstances? So this is somebody who even at a young age was a terrific actor. And it's something I have never forgotten in more than a quarter century. And I'm not surprised that Eric Lochtefeld has made a living as an actor, is uh, has certainly done very well by Mary Zimmerman's company out in Chicago. And uh, really, uh, it's wonderful to see him, considering that I had this experience with him uh, back in the early 90s. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm. All right, Michael, what is your take on Napoli, Brooklyn? That was a really wonderful story, Peter. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, Napoli, Brooklyn, uh, where to start? Peter mentioned 
kitchen sink, and I think that applies in more than one way. Not only the the ultra realism of this depiction of this uh, largely Italian neighborhood in Brooklyn in 1960, but also I think there's too much in the play as if he threw in everything but the kitchen <laughs> sink. I, I think it would have been a better play if the focus had been a little more narrow. It seems that several different issues are brought up and therefore not explored as much as they would have been. But also, um, this is by Megan Kennedy. Uh, uh, that's the playwright's name. And the, um, you know, this is one of those things I, I have to say, uh, it's, the play is built around this tragic event, which is supposed to be a spoiler. And in fact, um, if I'm correct, the uh, when you show up at the theater, uh, you don't you don't know anything about this, and you're not aware that it's coming in any way. But then when you go out for intermission, uh, you you will see on the walls of the lobby all of these big signboards explaining the history of this very specific tragic event that occurred. Um, and this is supposed to be the catalyst of the play in in many ways. Now I don't even know if I'm supposed to be telling you that much. This is I, I kind of object to plays <laughs> that have things that are supposed to be considered spoilers because if if a critic or an audience member objects to that spoiler or the way it's used, then then we're we're sort of pressured not to talk about it. So I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I'm tempted to just tell tell you. But let me say this, that this um Disaster that occurs, which is an actual historical disaster of the time, uh, is um, communicated, uh, depicted in in a way uh, on stage, uh, at least in terms of sound effect, in a way that is so shocking that the – a couple of people in back of me screamed. And I do think that it's so shocking that it could actually – possibly cause someone to have a heart attack. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that it actually is irresponsible in that way. And also, while we're at it, I don't think that that, uh, that the noise that this disaster would have made would actually have been like that. I, would, I think it would have been uh, s sort of a more uh, gradual buildup rather than this um, very, very sudden, unbelievably loud theater shaking sound that occurs. Um, so I uh, was I objected to that moment so much that I it colored my experience of the whole play. I think it has many lovely moments in it, but I also think it's uh, a lot of it is very cliched and very um, schematic and very melodramatic. So I think there's talent there on the part of Megan Kennedy, but I think that a lot of more work needs to be done. And I really wish that um, I mean, it's almost a gimmick in a way, the, the way this play is built around this this natural disaster, which I remember is some not natural disaster, excuse me, this disaster that um, I, I remember a friend of mine who is now deceased uh, used to focus um, on this uh, particular event because it was a really, really traumatic, major, major event at the time. And uh, he just was kind of fascinated in the way people are fascinated with the Titanic and, and uh, the disasters of that sort. Anyway, um, so that is Napoli, Brooklyn, uh, from my point of view. All right. So 
Uh, Michael, you weren't with us last week because you headed down to D.C. to see a few shows and do a few things. Uh, mm. We should talk about uh, your – did you go to the Smithsonian? I'm not on this trip. Not on no. this trip? I, I saw that you had – were flipping through oh. some scores or something like that. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Well, that it, – it really was quite an amazing trip. I, I went to the Library of Congress uh, – because I have a friend there who um, was very helpful to me. And initially I went to see the film of Porgy and Bess, which they have uh, in their collection. They have it, you know, digitized so you can watch it on a, on a, on a console, on a TV console. I have seen the whole thing before, but it's been years and I wanted to see it again in its uncut form uh, just so I could remember what's in it and what's not in it and what works and what doesn't. Um, the, uh, the, the complete version of the film has several things that are cut from, I don't know if it's the general release version or the TV version. For example, my man's gone now is in the, the full version and, uh, several other sections. Anyway, uh, that's why I went. But then while I was there, uh, I was talking with these wonderful people who work there and they were mentioning all of the, uh, amazing things they have in their collection. And, and one of them mentioned in passing, uh, this fellow named Ray White, he said, well, you know, we have so much Gershwin stuff and we have um, the original score of Porgy and Bess in, in three volumes and blah, blah, blah. And he's talking and he's talking. And I said, wait, are you telling me you have the original the originals full score of Porgy and Bess in George Gershwin's hand? And he said, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> so um, as I say, it's in three volumes, one per act, three huge volumes of full score and he brought out the first one and I was able to leaf through it very carefully and touch it and photograph it and, and it was you know really a kind of amazing moment in my life especially just having watched uh, the movie in its com in its complete form and then they had um, I mean you want you know one could spend years there <laughs> uh, just going just going through their amazing archives but uh uh, one thing that my friend Walter Swanchenko said he thought I might like to see was they had um, beautiful costume renderings by Miles White for uh, several original Broadway productions. And so he brought those out and I saw those and photographed those as well. Um, so that was – yeah, that was really – that would have been worth the trip <laughs> Um in itself, and they are open on Saturdays, um, the Library of Congress, which uh, is something to keep in mind for those of it us who— It seems that the Library of Congress works harder than actual Congress, right? Uh, <laughs> certainly lately. <laughs> <laughs> because Congress, you know, Monday through Friday they don't work, so you know, <laughs> the Library of Congress is open six days a week. <laughs> It's an incredible place, really, you know, and, and not unlike, uh, except even more impressive um, than the Lincoln Center Library, where I was yesterday looking at some other archival materials. So we we have these things at our disposal, and, and we really it, – it's so great to make use of them 
when you can just make the time for it. It's, it's, it's soul fulfilling. It really is anyway. Um, so, but my main reason for going, uh, to DC specifically was because our friend Debbie Schrager, who's one of our listeners had offered me a ticket to see Ewan Morton and Hedwig Hedwig and the angry inch at the Kennedy center at the Eisenhower theater. And I've always been a huge fan of Ewan, who I believe, um, was a guest on our podcast some time ago. Uh, and I knew I could just picture him in the role, and I assumed he would be fantastic, which he was. And I also was correct in assuming that he sang it better than anyone that I have heard do it. And and that's not to say anything against John Cameron Mitchell or Neil Patrick Harris, who were both phenomenal and, and sang it very well. But um, I think Ewan's voice is just on a different level, and he – really really sang the shit out of it but also his acting was as good as anyone else's if not better he he really had that character down and I, it was fun to see the show again I, I think it is a wonderful production the same production we saw uh the revival we saw on broadway directed by michael mayer the same conceit that um the show is being done uh because this other show called hurt locker the musical <laughs> had closed very quickly and so they had an opening and so they they slot hedvig in there <laughs> uh, i i love that and and we've still got the false playbill by the way um for hurt locker down at uh down at the kennedy center um oh and that leads me to another um funny thing is that uh this is one of the most entertaining aspects of the experience that uh there's one playbill uh for the kennedy center but it has the two shows that were playing there at the time in it one of which is hedvig and the angry inch and the other which of which is the sound of music so (laughs) (laughs) so i have so first of all that juxtaposition in itself is pretty hilarious but also uh the cover image is this sweet cover image of the woman who plays Maria, uh, you know, sitting in a nun's habit, <laughs> you know, in the, in the, uh, on a hill. And it's like, am I seeing Hedvig and the angry? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was really hysterical. And then the other thing that happened is, of course, that the night I was there, um, there are three spaces, three performance spaces in the Kennedy Center, two of which I have been to, the Eisenhower, where Hedvig is, the Opera House, where The Sound of Music is. Uh, this is the tour directed by Jack O'Brien. And then there's a, a concert hall that I have not been in, which on the night I attended was apparently um, the home to a <laughs> some kind of a rally of evangelical Christians at which Donald Trump was scheduled to speak. And he apparently was supposed to sched- uh, to speak about wounded veterans but of course he went off uh script and started talking about how much he hates the media and there was huge coverage of that the next day well he i was down the hall from him while all that was happening and i'm happy to say i didn't run into him but can you imagine hedvig and donald trump in the same room (laughs) i mean you know it's just it's just what a world we live in really Really? Well, uh, considering that some people have said that uh, 
Donald is built very much with an angry inch, perhaps uh, there is something to it. Who knows? Maybe they get along very well. They could relate to each other. Um, but yes, somebody else thought. made that point, and it's interesting to think that that may, may be the, the base of the problem with Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> back to Broadway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you also got to see uh, over at Shakespeare Theatre Company their production of The School for Lies at the – let me get this right – Landsberg Theatre? Yes, um, the, you know, one of their uh, two spaces, I believe, uh, and the, uh, which is where they were, uh, I think, before they they, had, they they built their big, new, wonderful uh, space, which is just a couple of blocks away. But this is one of the series of adaptations that David Ives has been doing of classic plays. Uh, this one uh, adapted from Le Misanthrope by Moliere. And they are all, as far as I know, this one certainly was in rhyming couplets, which he does <laughs> so well and so brilliantly. It, it, it cannot be easy to write a play in rhyming couplets, but he does it in a way that honors the originals. And yet it, it, um, it's very modern in a way, but yet it's postmodern and it it honors the past as well as the present. And the comedy is is absolutely phenomenal it it um it put me in mind of the uh, government inspector production that we just saw although that was not in rhyming couplets but that same kind of postmodern comic look at these wonderful classical plays and um i think yes i think people like david ives and jeffrey jeffrey uh asher jeffrey hatcher right mm-hmm. jeffrey hatcher is the person who adapted the government inspector correct Yes, that sounds right to me. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, they. Uh, it, it's a great talent that they have, and it's uh, wonderful to bring these old plays back for modern audiences. In this case, um, the cast <laughs> uh, was phenomenal: Gregory Waddell, Victoria Frings, Dorea Schmidt, Cody Nickel, uh, Vian Cox, of whom I've been a fan for years. Cameron Fulmar, Tom Story, Liam Craig, and Michael Glenn, uh, under the direction of Michael Kahn. Uh, so I was very, very happy to see that and that it coincided with uh, my plans to see Hedvig anyway. And if this one – I don't think this one has been in New York yet, but these these David Ives, as, as, these David Ives adaptations have been um, – I think kind of shuttling back and forth between DC and New York. So if we do get this one, make sure it's on your list. All right. So next up, Peter, you got a chance to uh, see America, the golden land. So tell us about that. The golden land uh, was produced off Broadway a few times in the eighties. And this is a bit of a rewrite. Um, when I came home, I immediately grabbed my cast album because I was so enthusiastic about hearing a song called Steam, Steam, Steam again. Alas, it's not on my album. So I think this is one of the new songs that uh, have been inserted into this uh, rewritten Golden Land. Now, this is a story about immigrants coming to America. So it's a rather timely story. And it is about immigrants who do get the job done, don't they? Um, so what we have at the beginning of course, is people who are full of hope about coming over here, fully expecting to see 
gold, if not on the streets, certainly um, in their future. So, uh, and then comes the disillusionment, and then comes the working hard, and then comes the success, and then comes the depression, and uh, it's starting all over again. So, uh, the point is that um, America is a tough place, but it's less tough than many others, and uh, nobody who came over is particularly sorry that he or she came over. Oh, there is some nostalgia for back home, and that comes late in the show because it it's just bound to happen. Every now and then you miss where you came from, but by and large, everybody is very, very happy that uh, he and she came to uh, America. So this is by Moshe Rosenfeld and Zalman Lotech, and they've done a wonderful job uh, as they did in the 80s, but um, the Steam, Steam, Steam song I'm talking about to me is worth the price of admission alone. It's uh, essentially a Second Avenue uh, vaudeville type number, uh, and the word Steam turns out to have three different meanings or at least three different contexts and uh, I think it's great fun the cast is marvelous now let me make very clear <laughs> that uh, one of the things that I think is marvelous is that they speak Yiddish throughout the entire show. Um, now, well, there are a few moments in English, but b- b- at least 95% of it is um, actually in Yiddish. So there are subtitles, well, supertitles. And um, by the way, if you are Russian and you do not speak English, you can have a good time too because there are actually Russian supertitles. In fact, they're above the. Um, uh, English supertitles, uh, perhaps a metaphor for um, Russia influencing our election. I don't know if they're on top of us. I don't know. But all things considered, we have a cast here that um, has about eight or nine people in it, and they're all marvelous. And one has to wonder if English is their second language. Um, did they learn this phonetically? I have no idea. But uh, they certainly speak it as if it's their first language, so it's very, very impressive. Now, um, not the easiest place in the world to get to, and um, not the uh, uh, certainly off the beaten track even for off Broadway. Well, what you do is you take the number one train down to the brand new station that um, came after Hurricane Sandy, devastated the other one. So uh, you go all the way to the end of the island, and then you just walk a bit, uh, about a ten minute walk to get to the Jewish Museum. That's where this is taking place. Um, it's a thirty six battery place to be very specific, but this is uh, the museum. Of Jewish heritage is that the actual name of it, and this is the National Yiddish Theater folks band, who um, who has made a policy of uh, doing uh, shows in the Second Avenue tradition. So, uh, so you even get a little bit uh, in the show about how um, they used to fool around with Shakespeare. I mean, uh, there's they they do a little bit of Hamlet, and out come the three witches to sing double double boil and trouble. Well, you know, I mean, as we all know, that is not from Hamlet, but uh, in Second Avenue days, it might well have been because they they were famous famous for fooling around with Shakespeare. The wonderful thing about it is, uh, depending on your age, what you are going to do is a riff on the biblical um, advice to, uh, well, commandment, <laughs> to honor thy father and mother. Well, for most of us, it means honoring our grandfather and grandmother, or even great-grandfather and great-grandmother, because we have to be very grateful that they made the trip over here, which couldn't have been easy. And it's devastating, too, just uh, when they get here, so many people are sent back because they're not considered healthy enough. Imagine making that long trip by boat in steerage, only to be turned around and sent back again. This is one of the points that are made. 
So if anybody feels that uh, he uh, is a little laissez-faire about the fact that um, he lives in America today, he or she, uh, this, this one really underlines the fact that we're very lucky to be here despite whatever is going on now. We're very lucky to be here. And um, we have to honor our great-grandparents, um, our grandparents or whoever they were who made that trip over here. And that's one of the great strengths of America, the Golden Land. So you have seen uh, a few other shows down at the National Theater, uh, theater folks being, haven't you? Yeah, um, I always go there when they offer something um, because it really does seem to me they do tremendously wonderful work. And um, this time I even recognized a couple of the people from being in previous shows. So I'm getting used to uh, saying, oh, yeah, there's a familiar face. And uh, I'm not because it's a review and nobody has um, a specific role to play. um, It's very hard to know who's uh, who's who. And um, that that is a bit of a problem. And everything comes at you so fast. One song after another that um you're more interested in watching the stage than checking your playbill to see who's who and that's a compliment to any show when you really aren't distracted by your playbill that you really want to keep your eyes on the stage so i recommend it highly oh that's great all right so we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check that out as well michael you got over to the laurie beachman theater where you saw uh, carol demas and sarah rice perform so tell us about that Yes, this was on Tuesday, June 27th, and uh, Carol Dimas, the original Sandy Dombrowski in Greece on Broadway, and Sarah Rice, the original Joanna in Sweeney Todd, among their other credits. And I guess they're really good friends, and they did a wonderful uh, Jones and Schmidt tribute show together. Um, They both also have um, uh, experience with Jones and Schmidt shows throughout their career and i'm happy to say that tom jones was in attendance so that made it really really even extra special and uh you know when you hear those songs from various shows uh performed in a review like this and performed so well you you just floored by the melodic and lyrical invention that these two had. I I really think they were among our very, very best musical theater songwriting teams. Um, I've often, every time I hear it, I I think to myself that this is a ridiculous statement, but I'm going to say it anyway, that My Cup Runneth Over is the most beautiful song ever written (laughs) for the American musical theater. I mean, it makes me feel that way every time I hear it. But on the other hand, there are several songs from the Fantastics that would also deserve that nomination. And I don't have to tell you how much I love the score of 110 in the Shade, so we could go on and on. They, um, Jones and Schmidt are the greatest, and I think it's wonderful that these two ladies, both of whom are still in fantastic voice, uh, did a whole show devoted to them, uh, including um, you know the the big hits, but also some lesser known material, uh, including Colette Collage or Colette, depending on which version of it you you know. And uh, the friend that I went with, it was. <laughs> It was um, it was fun to see. He apparently is a, a tremendous uh, fan of that show, like more so than the hits, even. And when they were singing uh, from that, he just was 
completely mesmerized. So we all have our our special shows, and some of them are a lot more famous than others. And when your when one of your favorite shows is pretty obscure, and someone uh, sings from it, that that mm. can be a, a very special, very mm. special feeling. So that that was. That was a wonderful, wonderful evening. And then just last night, um, the uh, the eighth, I went to Feinstein's Fifty Four Below to see Christ- Christine Andreas do a marvelous uh, Edith Piaf tribute show called Piaf No Regrets. Uh, she uh, Christine has been known for years for her flawless. French pronunciation as well as style of singing. Uh, in fact, her last Broadway role was Jacqueline in the revival of La Cage aux Folles. Uh, she really is just spot on when it comes to style uh, and pronunciation of French. And her voice is as good at it as it has ever been. That amazing voice that she has. Uh, incredible range and just beautiful tone. So she did um, a wonderful evening that actually started out with a, a clip, uh, an actual clip of the actual Edith Piaf. And then um, a very generous program, mostly in French, but some songs in English as well, including Autumn Leaves and parts of La Vie en Rose. Uh, so it was um, it was really a wonderful show. And I'm happy to say uh, that it looked pretty packed to me. Uh, I wasn't sure, you know, because it's it was a it's a one woman show and it it's uh not about current broadway and and a lot of the things i see at 54 below are uh, more more broadway related but this um really was a, a a wonderful slightly different type of show that went over like gangbusters and i always enjoy seeing christine no matter what and i think she and her husband martin silvestri put together a really fantastic tribute to edith piaf christine when she was in grammar school uh, a catholic school uh, the nun noticed that she had a beautiful voice and told the mother that if you do not some do, do something with this girl and her voice, you will go to hell. Um, <laughs> so so uh, I have no idea if Christine's mother is still alive. Of course, I hope she is. But if she isn't, I imagine she's in heaven because indeed she did do something and get her daughter on the right track of singing. So, uh, yeah, she's one of my favorites, too. And uh, I'm really delighted. She also appeared. You, you talk about Colette Collage being a favorite uh, that's unknown. <clears throat> Christine Andreas was in a musical that was written by the man who would become her husband, Martin Silvestri, um, that I'm very fond of called The Fields of Ambrosia that was done in London, first at the George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick and then in London where it got terrible reviews, terrible, terrible reviews and right. closed very, very quickly. But if you get the uh, cast album, I think you'll be impressed at the music and the performance of Christine Andreas. There's a lot of beautiful stuff in it. By the way, for this show, Martin not only was the accompanist and musical director, I think, well, I don't know if he learned it specifically for this show, but he played accordion uh, beautifully on several numbers. And that really (laughs) that really added to the French flavor as well. So that was wonderful. Okay, Uh, so next up, Peter, you got to see Of Human Bondage, which was by the Soul Pepper Troupe from Canada at the Signature. So tell us about that. Well, the Soul Pepper Theater in in Toronto is certainly one that has a tremendous reputation. And if you see of human bondage, at the uh, which is now the Signature Theater, uh, that's where they're uh, visiting. 
you are going to be super impressed and say, yes, I can understand why they have this magnificent reputation, because this is a phenomenal production, phenomenal beyond belief. Um, now, I, I didn't know this novel. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed to say I saw the movie with Betty Davis uh, quite many years ago. So I really didn't have um, very much knowledge of what was going to happen. I knew that it was about a, a, a person who um, had a problem with his foot um, uh, when he was born. And that certainly affects the way he looks at life. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why he gets involved with a woman who has very little regard for him. She says essentially the thing that so many men have heard along the way. Um, this isn't dialogue, but the concept of um, I, I don't want you as a lover or a husband, but I'd like you as a friend. Frankly, when she says it, uh, we don't even believe it because she treats him in a way that no friend would ever treat a friend. So, And yet the more she comes down on him, the more that um, – he tries to be good to her and he's phenomenally good to her. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. She just doesn't appreciate him because he doesn't have the music that makes her dance. I mean, it really comes down to that. Gregory Prest is the name of the actor who plays, um, Philip, our, um, our person with the problem. And, uh, the object of his affection is wonderfully played by Michelle Monteith. These are terrific performances, and it's amazingly directed by Albert Schultz. Uh, again, these names probably don't mean anything to anybody because this is a Canadian troupe. But wow, what's going on up there in Canada? This should be so wonderful. It's done in a very stylistic way, no question about that. I mean, when somebody looks in a mirror, an actor comes over and holds a mirror, and uh, the person looks in it. That type of staging. Uh, very imaginative, very fluid, um, no intermission, uh, just oh, – I'm sorry, there is an intermission and it comes at a very good time but notice that i didn't even think there was an intermission because it flows so beautifully so um a view in bondage is definitely going to be one of the things that's going to be remembered from the 2017 2018 season and uh if you can't get to it here if they revive it in toronto go up there and see it because it really is top-notch work i hope that I'm doing it justice because it's entirely possible that people who know this novel inside out say, what are you crazy? They missed the part about, Oh, the, the point was, should be made, blah, blah, blah. It could be, you know, <laughs> again, my ignorance of the novel may turn out to be a barrier here, but I'll tell you people walking out of that theater probably didn't know the novel either because whoa, was there chatter galore, uh, as people were leaving and saying, wasn't hand over heart type stuff. Uh, wasn't that marvelous. Can you believe all that? So, um, I'm also told that another show called Kim's Convenience, which again, Soul Pepper is doing, I have not seen. I understand it's only about an hour or something long. Uh, it, it became such a big success that there's actually a TV series now in Canada based on it. And um, everybody's been saying to me, you've got to get there and see this. So that one is probably wonderful, too. And I hope I will get a chance, though. The days dwindle down to a precious few, and um, I, I don't know. But uh, if you have a chance to see Kim's Convenience, at least word of mouth is telling me it's wonderful. That is uh, – that's great to know. It is playing – of Human Bondage is playing through – uh, July 26th, so okay. you still have uh, a little while to catch that, um, and uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Okay, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Michael, you got a chance to go to the Jimmies. Peter was out of town, so he didn't go to the Jimmies, so give us the update on the Jimmies. Well, it's always 
one of my favorite events every year, and it apparently has become quite the event. Uh, it has grown over the years. Uh, the National High School Musical Theater Awards, better known as the Jimmies after Jimmy Niederlander. And what this is, as uh, we've discussed before, is that the best uh, high school actors, performers, singers uh, compete regionally and uh, they are chosen in their regions, uh, uh, you know, one boy and one girl. And then they all get sent to New York uh, where they spend about a week here and uh, they work on putting together this incredible show that um, consists largely of uh, huge medleys in which they perform little snippets of the role for which they have won the award regionally. And then at the end of the uh, show, uh, one uh, – well, there are finalists, but then there is one young man and one young woman who are chosen as the winners. And in this case, the winners were uh, – it was actually – uh, I, I don't know if this has happened before. Uh, both winners were from the same region. They both represent the applause Awards in Orlando, Florida, and their names were Sophia Deller and Tony Moreno. Um, I think that's a first, but it certainly uh, the audience was uh, was very much behind the choices. Uh, uh, needless to say, though, the entire everyone on stage had a tremendous amount of talent, or they wouldn't have been brought to New York to begin with. Uh, this year's event had an extra. Uh, well, two extra elements of excitement and interest because uh, James Niederlander Sr., the one after whom the awards were named, had died within the past year. So this award show was dedicated to him. And there was even a number written, especially as a tribute to him, that the kids performed. And in addition to that, the host was the best possible choice. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Ben <laughs> Platt. Ben Platt, who, first of all, because of the type of role that he plays in Dear Evan Hansen, was was the, a great choice for that reason alone. But also, um, he turns out to be phenomenal in terms of being able to be very quick on his feet and very uh, spontaneous uh, seeming and, and just so incredibly charming and funny and light in hosting these awards. He, um, that is a separate talent that not everyone has. You can be the greatest actor in the world, but that doesn't mean you're going to be a good host for an award show as others, um, have probably shown us recently. <laughs> um, so, but he, uh, yeah, he was just the best host you could, you could conceive of. And, uh, the, because partly because of his participation, this, uh, it was announced that this was the first Jimmy awards that had ever sold out. Um, and I think it's only going to continue like that because now it's become so high profile. It started kind of small, uh, in terms of, um, in terms of uh, you know cover press coverage and and profile high profile, but now it's really really grown and it's uh, they do it. Um, I guess it's always in the Minskoff Theater, or at least it has been as long as I can remember it. Uh, and 
it uh, they have wonderful people working with the kids to work on their numbers and the production staff is is top notch and and i think even down to the point where this year the orchestra seemed much larger to me than it had been in the past so it's become really really quite something and i uh if you haven't gone to one uh you know, uh, get on the stick early for next year because, as I say, it, it it did wind up being sold out this year. All right, and that's uh, that's really exciting, Michael. Do you know if they are recording any of these? I know that they Facebook live streamed it. I don't know if anybody uh, can get back and watch it again. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can only assume that they're taped for archival purposes i don't don't know how one would find that uh go through the nederlanders i don't know if it's at uh theater on film and tape that's a good question uh but uh did they do i know that they uh they didn't do the whole thing on facebook streaming but they did the announcement of the winners streaming oh right Uh, yes yeah uh and did they do anything special you were in the audience for that uh, anything special as far as the live streaming? At this far, did they stop and say, "Okay, this is going to be streamed," or did, or was it just that maybe the whole thing was recorded and they just turned it on when they got to that that point? They did not stop, but I think uh, someone, maybe Ben Platt, mentioned that it was that then that the winners were going to be live streamed. Yeah, interesting that the winners, both the male and the female winner, came from the same uh, air. They came from the Orlando. Uh, Yes. Yes, as I said. I wonder if they had any Disney experience. Uh, I wonder if they worked at Disney World and cut their teeth on uh, musical theater. (laughs) There there are shows there. It's not impossible. So uh, they may have had a little extra experience. And again, I have no idea, and I'm not holding it against them or anything like that. I'm just wondering. But uh, certainly Orlando is a place where one can certainly uh, uh, appear in shows. And for what it's worth, in this case, I did pick the – the female winner from oh, from, nice. the, from the from the moment she she stepped on stage and started singing. I said she's going to win. <laughs> she wow, had, she had that impressive. thing. That yeah, she does. She's also uh, you know uh, not to be superficial, but she's quite gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of a uh, Melissa Erico Laura Benanti thing going on there. So I don't think that's going to hurt her. But aside from that, <laughs> her, her her voice was just just great. So Sophia Deller, keep an eye out. And Tony Moreno uh, was also fantastic. Well, um, I remember seeing Laura Benanti at the um, awards that Paper Mill gives out when she was a high schooler. So maybe history will repeat itself that somebody who wins a high school competition will go on and uh, do very well. Yep. Certainly we have Abel Novozada who didn't win but uh, did win because she got the part in Miss Saigon. So uh, very, very impressive how these things are happening. And thank God that high school theater is being recognized on such a great level that uh, these kids are actually on the same stage where the Lion King is performing. That must be one of the 12 great thrills of all time for them. So, um, Oh, on that note, this, this year's ceremony did include a, a, a video clip of where are they now? Uh, ah. And because there are several and they certainly had Ava Nobazada in there yeah. with some footage of her and Miss Saigon. They also had Ryan McCartan, uh, who did the uh, the TV? Who was Brad in the TV version of Rocky Horror? And it was also uh, on stage in uh, Heather's, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And then and then um, several other people who've done really really notable things in the very few years, <laughs> uh, you know, since they uh, 
since the Jimmies have started. So that was just great. So um, maybe they can uh, pick, pluck this woman in a, out of the Jimmy Awards and put her into My Fair Lady. You know, mm-hmm. ah. <laughs> I'll have to see this. They're still looking. They're going back and forth, and the rumor mm-hmm. is, is that they want to uh, cast. Um, uh, who is it they want? They're, they're looking at a celebrity to cast. Well, I don't know, but uh, but um, did you see parenthetically that there was just an announcement that Laura Benanti is not going to be continuing in her role on TV in Supergirl? And it said it was because of a, something to the effect of a major New York theater commitment. But none of us knows what that is. <laughs> um, so I don't think it's My Fair Lady, but I suppose it's conceivable. Mm-hmm. We'll have to sting. Okay. Uh, Peter, uh, fill us in, fill us all in on the upcoming Follies broadcast from the National Theatre. Yes, many of us were planning trips to London to see Imelda Staunton uh, do uh, Sally in Follies uh, this coming season. And, um, well, many of us still will, of course, but many of us who were on the fence about doing it, whether it be from time or budget, will certainly be uh, seeing it on November 16th when it's going to be uh, National Theatre Live to us here. Now, what I want to have happen... Yeah, because where is it going to be? I mean, you know, the Ziegfeld is closed. When Merrily We Roll Along was done at the Ziegfeld, the same type of thing. My Lord, was that place packed. So uh, now that the Ziegfeld is closed, can it be reopened? I don't know. But here's what I want. I want the powers that be to book the Hellinger Theater for that night and have us see it there. Wouldn't that be something to be able to go back in the Hellinger and see Follies, which after all is about a theater that is not going to be in existence anymore. Granted, the Weissman Theater is going to be torn down, but um, and the Hellinger, thank God, has not been torn down. I mean, there's always the possibility, however slight, that it could come back to us from the Times Square Church. But at least for that night, wouldn't it be glorious to see Follies in that beautiful, beautiful theater, which, by the way, the church has kept up very, very nicely. So um, if you can ever stop in, you know, just take a look around. You'll really be impressed with what the Hellinger still is. And, of course, you'll mourn for what it was and is no longer. But that's where I want it to happen. But I'm sure that a lot of us who have an interest in Follies, and which of us does not, um, are, going to, <laughs> um, are going to be very busy on the night of November 16th. So anybody who is planning to have a party that night to celebrate the anniversary of The Sound of Music. Why don't you have it the night before or the night after? Because uh, we're all going to be at Follies. Well, if I might suggest, that is a fantastic idea. But if it doesn't work out to do it at the Hellinger, maybe they could do it at the New Amsterdam. Yes, I'd like to see it at some Broadway theater. I mean, it it has to be at a place that can accommodate all of us. I mean, uh, there are just so many of us who want to see this. So as a result, um, they're not going to have any problem selling out a major venue. But it can't be at one of these little tiny places on 42nd Street um, that are are basically glorified rooms. I mean, this isn't going to be at the Quad on 13th Street. I mean, there is just going to be too much demand for it. So where it lands is going to be one of the most fascinating Uh, answers to the question of um, this season. Well, not only that, Peter, I'm not sure if you're aware, but when Merrily was shown, it was shown in more than one theater. Um, Here in New York? Yeah, I mean, I saw it uh, 
in one of those 42nd Street places you're referring to. But then it was also, as you said, at the Ziegfeld, right? Yeah, yeah, that's where I saw it. So, so, uh, so that uh, that would certainly be a possibility. But yes, uh, <laughs> that would be great if they could do it in a Broadway theater. Well, I want us all to be together. You know, I mean, it was it was, yeah, it, was really, yeah, yeah. it was really something to see merrily with people who cared that much. You know, and and it grows exponentially the more people you have in a space. So, uh, well, I'm sure you had a wonderful time watching that um, merrily in the smaller space. Believe me, in the bigger space, it was just titanic to have the applause and the cheers and all that went with that. Uh, so, and of course, as merrily certainly has its fans. No question, but Follies, I dare say, has many more. And under those circumstances, this is going to be like a religious ceremony. So maybe it should be at the Times Square Church. So I'm not sure what's going to be dark uh, when this plays in November 16th or so, but uh, I'm thinking of the Palace Theater is now available. Uh, I don't know if something else is going in there before then. So, oh, we have SpongeBob going uh, in, in yeah, December. So, they, so d- certainly yeah. that's not going to be able to happen. Have either one of you guys seen Marvin's Room? No, I go Wednesday. I saw it. I liked it very, very much, uh, with one exception. Uh, I thought the cast was phenomenal. I thought the set design was very odd. It was a huge, huge set on the on the stage of the American Airlines Theater. And I and I said this in my review for Talking Broadway. I, I can't imagine why that decision was made. Uh, it's Laura Jelinek as the set designer, and Ann Kaufman is the director. And I loved everything else about the production except that um, they obviously made a specific decision to do that. But I can't. For the life of me, figure it out. So maybe we'll talk about that in full next week. Sure. All right. So uh, before we head out for the day and talk about trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. Uh, Our Heart Radio plays us. uh, Google Play... um, Plays us, tune in, radio plays us, the Stitcher app plays us, Broadway World Radio plays us, Wednesdays at noon, Thursdays at 7 p.m., and Saturdays at 2 p.m. Contact information for Michael, for Peter, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including the Library of Congress and Porgy and Bess, are all in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. So, um, Peter, why don't you give us an uh, answer to last week's trivia? Well, I asked what characters the musical had in common, and I will tell you before I give the answer that the seven I mentioned changed their names somewhere along the line. For example, Lily Garland was Mildred Plotka. Joe Hardy was Joe Boyd. Eve Harrington was Gertrude Schelinski. Harold Till was Gregory. We never know the last name, but Marcellus does call him Gregory at one point, uh, Greg specifically. And, um, and in fact, this is where I got the idea for the question, because I recently saw The Music Man at North Shore Music Theater in Beverly. So Paul San Marco was Ephraim Ramirez. Senor Pirelli was Danny O'Higgins. And Sweeney Todd was Benjamin Barker. Now, Carrie Winslow was the first to get it, followed by Ron Fassler, Jeff Valenga, Kathy Jones, Dev Popple. Jed Slaughter, Robert Lobiondo, Jake Leonard, Lance Noe, Jack Leshner, Josh Israel, and Steve Bell. <laughs> but also on my list was Dolores Zeppel. 
who stymied many of those who wrote in and guessed the solution without knowing who she was. A lot of people said, oh, they, 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 they changed their names. Uh, Lily Gollin was Mildred Plotka, Joe Hardy was Joe Boyd, etc. And I noticed that only Carrie Winslow and a couple of others um, knew who Dolores Zeppel was. So as a result, that's this week's question. Okay, who was Dolores Zeppel and what were two other names the character had? And in what show did she appear? <laughs> we saw lots of these uh, solutions come in this week, uh, Fast and Furious. Uh, so we'll have to see if these same folks can um, decrypt that, that question as well. All right. So that wraps it up for us. On behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. An actor that's compactor <laughs> And always arrives overdone I'll come again when you have judge on the menu Wait, true, we don't have judge yet But there's something else you might fancy even better oh, And what is that? Executioner Have charity toward the world, my pet Yes, yes, I know, my love We'll take the customers that we can get High, born and low, my love We won't discriminate great from small No, we'll serve anyone We'll serve anyone And to anyone